a highway patrolman was pulling alongside of a little old lady who was speeding in the, in the lane next to him. As he pulled up next to her, he, he couldn't believe what he saw. She was there speeding, but she was also knitting at the same time. <laughs> and uh, he couldn't believe it. He, and, he, and he said, you know, pull over. And she looked at him, kind of disgusted, and said, no, cardigan. Get it was a pullover sweater rather than a cardigan. Anyway, that's one witty little knitter. But uh, <laughs> the Lord is calling out the people during Malachi's day and they don't get it. Everything that he says, they've got some witty little comeback that's actually kind of pathetic. And it's embarrassing how bad these people are out of sync with the Lord. You know, we saw him start in chapter one, you know, you know, I have loved you. And they said, where in if you loved us? Um, and they just didn't get it. There was a million ways that the Lord demonstrated his love for the people of Israel. He said, you have despised my name. And they said, wherein did we despise your name? Um, and you've polluted my table and my bread. And wherein have we polluted you? They said, so this is kind of the way this book sort of rolls right now is with this sort of the people going, what have we done? You know, what are you talking about God? And that's sort of their attitude. Um, you know, it's interesting because if they would have understood his heart for them, his love for them, they would have not acted so badly. And so tonight, as we kind of wrap up this Old Testament, last week we saw that sort of this is the uh, end of that the, you know, the prophets, the Old Testament period, it's, it, it springs into the intertestamental period, the silent years between the Old Testament and the New Testament when Christ comes. And this is chronologically that place, also uh, in the Bible, it's at that place. It's the very end of those, those times. And this is the condition we find the children of Israel. On uh, Wednesday last, we saw, first of all, in chapter one, verses two through five, we saw number one, the denying of God's love. Wherein have we, you know, wherein did you love us? And they were acting like God didn't love them. We saw that, but also in verses six to 14, we saw number two, uh, the defiling of God's table. They defiled the worship service in the temple. They were bringing defiled offerings um, and it was abomination before the Lord. And so tonight we pick it up and the third part of this book uh, divides into number three, the devaluing of God's word. And that's chapter two, uh, verses one through nine here in, uh, in Malachi. So let's pick it up in chapter two, verse one. He says, and now, O ye priests, this commandment is for you. If you will not hear, and if you will not lay it to your heart, or to heart, to give glory unto my name, saith the Lord of hosts, I will even send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yea, I've cursed them already, because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will corrupt your seed, and spread dung on your faces, <laughs> even the dung of your solemn feasts, and one shall take you away with it. And you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you, that my covenant might be with Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. My covenant was with him of life and peace. I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he feared me and was afraid before my name. The law of truth was in his mouth. Iniquity was not found in his lips. He walked with me in peace and equity 
and did turn many away from iniquity. He said, you didn't listen to my word and you didn't take it to heart. Uh, in verse two, you know, he says, you know, if, you, if you're not listen or not hear then you, then, and, and you didn't lay it to heart, then you're gonna have trouble and it's gonna come back on you is what he said. It's interesting how the Bible is tricky that way, where we can have maybe an intellectual knowledge of the Bible, but you know, they always talk about that eight, 18 inches between your head and your heart. And you gotta take the Bible to heart, where it's life-changing and, and it's meaningful. It's, it's the Lord's love letter that he's written to his people. And the Jews are like, yeah, whatever. And they didn't listen, they didn't take the word to heart. And, uh, and, and because of that, the Lord says, you're gonna have dung on your face. You say, that's kind of mean. Isn't that mean of God spreading dung on the people's face? Is God trying to be a bully? Um, no, it's because of what they were doing. They, they were doing sinful stuff. Um, they were the ones dirtying themselves. And, and that was just the result. Um, remember the prodigal? The prodigal took off, did his own thing. And he ends up in the pig pen and the pig dung and the pig slop. Uh, that's what sin does. When we don't listen to the word of God, uh, and, and you start kind of, why does my life stink? The answer, got dung on your face. The whole, the old saying, the whole world stinks when you have Limburger cheese on your mustache. And that's the problem. There's people in this world, oh, the world stinks, but actually it's because they've got dung on their face. That's why it stinks. And they, they need to understand the way you, you, you deal with that is you got to wash in the water of the word. Um, by the way, you know, one of the things that's dangerous uh, about a church like ours um, is we can almost convince ourselves, and I'm the same way, you know, we can convince ourselves that because we're here at the Bible study and because we took the notes and we heard the sermon, somehow we got it and we've internalized it and we actually are applying it to our lives. But as it turns out, um, sometimes uh, just because we took the notes doesn't mean that it went to our hearts. And it doesn't mean that we become doers of the word, not hearers only. Um, you know, that's the question. Do I take God's word to heart? Is it a life-changing sort of uh, phenomena as I go through the Bible? Or is it just an academic exercise of, of lecturing through the Bible? God forbid that that's what we do here at Athey. Um, you know, so, the, you know, their sin nature of the people makes them wallow in the, in the slop, in the dung, is the idea. And so their lives stink and they, what they need is they need to run it through a shower. Uh, how do you wash yourself like these people? What would be the answer for them? Well, we learned that in the New Testament. Here's a couple of verses that I love on this, on this notion. 1 John 1, 7. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship one with another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. As you and I live in this world that's full of dung and we wallow in the slop with our sin, uh, I'm so thankful for the cleansing of, of God, that God sends his son, Jesus. And if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Another good one is the, the bride of Christ, the church, that's us. Uh, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church, Ephesians 5 declares. And it says that he might sanctify, that means to set apart and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot, or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy without blemish. That's what the Lord wants to do for us. And how do we do that? By the washing of the water of the word. But you have to understand, the word has to be taken to heart, it has to reach the, the, uh, the seat of our emotion. Um, that's kind of the, the key. And so that's why we call this section of the scripture a devaluing of God's word. 
Um, notice, notice he mentions a group of people here that once sort of had it dialed in. Who, who would that the group, group of people be? It says there in verse four, and you shall know that I have sent this commandment unto you that my covenant might be with Levi, saith Lord of hosts. If you recall the Levites, they were a people that were cursed. They got cursed all the way back to the father of Israel, Jacob, when he was passing out the blessings and the curses, the son of the 12 tribes, Levi, he was cursed by his dad. And if you remember the reason why was Levi and Simeon did these really brutal things to the men of Shechem. Um, they, they tricked him into being circumcised and then slaughtered the whole town full of men. And you remember Jacob said, oh, you've caused my name to stink in the land. And so when it came time to pass out the blessings, he gave a curse to Levi and said, you will not have an inheritance in the promised land when, when God leads my people to, you know, and, that, and that's, that actually did happen. The Levites didn't have an inheritance. But therein lies an interesting story that's very redemptive. Do you remember there at the foot of Mount Sinai, and you can go back to the story there in Exodus 32, where, do you remember when um, Moses, you know, is up there getting the 10 commandments and Moses says, man, uh, Lord says to Moses, man, you gotta get down. The people, well, your King James says, the people are at play. And we're not saying, you know, they, they were playing Frisbee, if you know what I mean. They were uh, playing with all kinds of idolatry and sin, and they made a golden calf and all this stuff. Well, Moses comes down and sees the people partying down, dancing nakedly around a golden calf like the ones they had in Egypt. And Moses, he, he declares something there in Exodus 32. He says, who is on the Lord's side? And there was only one group of people that said, we are. It was the Levites, the cursed tribe. They said, we're on the Lord's side. And so Moses said, draw your swords, hack up these people who are worshiping this golden calf. Brutal story. 3,000 people were slain that day. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that 3,000 people died the day the law came down from Mount Sinai as Moses was walking with the Ten Commandments. Uh, the law does kill, by the way. Um, and the law came down and 3,000 people were slain and it was a horrible, horrible story. Now, by the way, there's sort of a antithesis of the, the day Moses came down with the law. It's when the Holy Spirit came down upon his church. Do you remember there in Acts chapter two, the Holy Spirit comes down upon Peter and the men of, of that place where the Christians were, tongues of fire were over their head and, and Peter filled with the Holy Ghost spoke a sermon and so powerful was it. Do you remember how many people got saved that day? 3,000 people were saved that day when the, when the Spirit came down upon his church. Um, beautiful, uh, you know, uh, glorious story there. But that's why the Levites, the Levites were particularly at this time set aside for God's purpose. And they were, they were uh, there, there's actually a list here. So in verse five, we see that covenant that he makes with the Levites. Uh, verse five, my covenant was with him, life, peace. I gave them to him for the fear wherewith he was feared. They, they were God-fearing people. That's why they were on the Lord's side on that day in Exodus 32. But there's a neat little list here of things, the Levites, their characteristics that I think are worth noting, stuff that you and I should perhaps look at in our own lives uh, to see if we're doing very well with this. And the first thing we see here in verse six, there's actually um, quite a few little things listed here. Number one, the law of truth was in his mouth. That means that they had the, the word of God near to their tongue. They were able to speak the word of God. Are you one that speaks the word of God? Do you know the word of God? It's good that, you know, I love being a pastor of a church that cares about Wednesday night Bible study. Um, it's fun tonight, you know, as we finish up the Old Testament, there's just kind of a fun, you know, there's a lot of churches that don't even have, most churches don't have a midweek study anymore. Um, and to me, that's a real bummer. 
Uh, I, I believe what we do here on Wednesday night is sort of the, the, the backbone of everything we do at Athey Creek. Uh, even Sundays are sort of a peripheral compared to this, what we do, clamping down, going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. Um, and I love that that's, that's the way you do it, by the way. The way you let the word be on the tip of your tongue is be in the word regularly. Not just here on a Wednesday, but in your own time devotionally. Man, making the word of God a major part of your life. That's a, that's a key. So that's the first thing, that the law of truth was in his mouth. Number two, iniquity, iniquity was not found in his, on his lips. Boy, this is something I've noticed within Christians, we talk about stuff and we say stuff and we even cuss like we used to not cuss. Have you noticed that? People are cussing more. It's like a, it's like a cool thing these days. Cussing is coming back. At least that's what I've noticed. Um, it depends on your circle, I suppose. Some of you have never left the cussing you know, at your workplace or whatever. You're like, yeah, Brad, it's always been, you know, cussing. But, but I, I've noticed even among Christians, it's like we've sort of acted like it's no big deal. Um, but not just cussing, but, but just saying sinful stuff. Like uh, iniquity was not found on his lips. Man, that's something that I would want. You know, the Bible talks about your tongue as a deadly poison, an unruly evil that no man can tame. Uh, boy, that's a truth. But we need to be people that have pure lips and pure, pure speech and what have you. That, that's these Levites. Number three, it says here uh, that he walked with me in peace and equity. Um, that man, uh, th- this reminds me of one of the great characters of the Bible, Enoch. Do you remember Enoch there? In Genesis 5:24, it says that Enoch walked with God. And then in Hebrews uh, chapter 11, it says that, Hebrew, that uh, Enoch was one who pleased God. Those were the two things said about this little guy named Enoch. He walked with God and he pleased God. Um, and that's what God wants from you. He wants to have a steady progress, progress walk. And walking implies progress and it also implies steady. Not a sprint, not a marathon, just walk with God day in and day out. That was the Levite's attribute when they set aside themselves. But then there's a, the, the last one of, that's listed here is it said they did turn away uh, many from iniquity. They were, they were the, the hammer, not the nail. Question, are you a hammer or are you a nail? When you go to work or when you go to school, are you the one being influenced by the world um, and, and the world drives you to go whatever direction they want you to go. Maybe you start cussing when you're around your cussing friends because well, you're a nail and they're hammering you in the direction that you should not be going. Or are you the, the hammer and they're the nail? <laughs> um, you know, uh, I remember uh, my dad used to tell me that all the time, Brett, you're either a hammer or a nail. As we'd walk out the door he'd, uh, on my way to school, Brett, you're either a hammer or a nail. And so I, I'd tried to be more of a hammer sometimes, um, probably a little too much sometimes, um, but, um, but trying to do it right. Um, like I wasn't one who was cussing in school and, and it, it actually got to the place on like my football team, I was the captain of my football team and everybody was cussing and stuff. But when I'd walk up, you, the guy, oh, here comes Brett, you know, Mr. Goody Two Shoes, you know, and they, they would just kind of joke around about how I didn't cuss and I was at church and all that stuff. But you know what? I just kind of laughed and said, yeah, you better keep it that way. You know, it's like, like uh, no cussing around me. <laughs> uh, but it was all in good fun. But I, I did want to be the guy that kind of cleaned things up when I was in the room or on the field or you know, at the workplace. And, and that's something you and I can do. You're either a hammer or a nail. Um, these people, the Levites, they were turning many people away from their sins. 
Do you make people feel more comfortable in their sin or do you turn them away from sin? Hammer and nails, the question that you could ask yourself. But basically, the, the, the Levites were doing what God wanted them to do. Um, they were keeping the word of God. That's why he refers to them. And that's in opposition to the general public during Malachi's time. They, they were doing none of those things. They were doing the opposite and they could care less about what God's word actually said. Um, he goes on there in verse seven. For the priest's lips should keep knowledge and they should seek the law at his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you are departed out of the way. You have caused many to stumble at the law. Ye have corrupted the covenant of Levi, saith the Lord of hosts. Verse nine, therefore have I also made you contemptible and base before all the people, according as ye have not kept my ways, but have been partial in the law. Or some of your newer translations say they have shown partiality with the law. Um, stuff we see today. Um, but all that to say, this description, the Lord calls them out. They could care less about God's word. They've departed out of the way, verse eight, it says. That means out of the way of God, the way of truth. One of the things I'm so thankful about the word of God is it's the compass of truth. Um, you'll never be disappointed. And, and this is coming from a guy who's been studying the Bible as long as I can remember, just as a little kid going to church, Wednesday night Bible study. Um, but I've never once been sad when I stuck with God's word. There's never been one time in my life where I think, well, I think the Bible's wrong on that one. I think the world's got it right on this one. Um, like, like, I just wanna tell you, go with God's word. Don't get sucked into this world in the way that it does stuff. Um, the world is in such opposition to God's word. I know, I know I don't even really need to say this, it's so crazy. We've reached such a crazy, feverish pitch of craziness. We've become so open-minded, our brains are falling out. That's what we're seeing happen today. Do you guys get a sense, you know, I don't know, but I do get a sense that even some of the crazies in the world are starting to go, eh, we're not that crazy. Like, like even, even the crazy people are starting to go, whew, uh, that's pretty crazy. It's a little weird to see how crazy, I mean, crazy, crazy. Maybe there's gonna be an ebb and flow. I, I'm sensing a little bit of an ebb because it just got a little too crazy uh, in the last couple months even. Uh, it's gotten so crazy. But the idea is, um, you know, they were, they were sort of doing this religious activity going to the temple, bringing scabbed up, scurvy, blind, lame, crippled lambs to sacrifice to God. Um, and they were, they were not caring about what the word actually says that they were supposed to. The word said, bring the first fruit of your lambs uh, and, and come and be separate and, and do what God's word tells you to do. But the people were not doing that. Um, and, and so because they had gotten away from the word, they've departed out of the way, they were stumbled at the law, and they've corrupted the covenant. These are the things that people had done. And I gotta say this, and I know this sounds like we're patting ourselves on the back, and I have to say this, I, I say this truly humbly, um, it's not like this was my idea to go through the Bible. Uh, through the Bible, something churches used to do, by the way. Um, old J. Vernon McGee used to go through the Bible. Um, uh, and uh, my pastor used to go through the Bible when I was a kid growing up, Chuck Smith, used to go through the Bible when he was alive. And um, a lot of the Calvary chapels used to go verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book through the Bible. A lot of them have kind of gotten away from that, uh, which is unfortunate. 
But there's something about the just teaching verse by verse through the Bible versus more of the topical sort of thing. And, and, and let me just say this, there's some good churches out there that teach topically. I'm not saying they're bad churches, but, but I'm just saying, watch out for just topical teaching that's, that's sort of whatever the pastor's pet peeve is, that's what he's teaching. Um, you, can, you can have, you know, the various series of things that he thinks is, is important. But I find it interesting, oftentimes you see, and I'm just going to be kind of sort of crass here, I'm not trying to be, but, but a lot of times when I hear these pastors' topicals, I'm like, man, how did he get that out of the Bible? Like, you can teach anything you want if you find the right verse out of context. I can just make up whatever topic I want, whatever, you know, is a burr under my saddle. I can say, well, I'm gonna teach on this and we'll find some scripture to support what I'm talking about. But if you read the whole thing, the scriptures actually don't support some of the stuff they talk about. I believe it's a little dangerous to go just topical teaching week in and week out where, you know, you get your favorite topics. Um, There's something really good about going verse by verse and not skipping anything. Um, I think that's important. And that's why, uh, you know, Paul talked about, I have not shunned to declare unto you the whole counsel of God, Acts chapter 20. Acts chapter 20, by the way, is an amazing passage where Paul talked to the leaders of the church at Ephesus, a church that was very, you know, uh, came out of a real worldly, godless kind of lifestyle and they all got saved. And then the, the elders of the church at Ephesus, Paul, like, like for example, Acts 20 verse 28, powerful passage. Paul said to the elders, he said, take heed therefore to yourselves and to the flock over which the Holy Ghost hath made you overseers. And notice what he says, to feed the church of God, which he hath purchased with his own blood. Um, that, as a pastor, this, this verse gives, gives me great pause and great sobriety. Man, I think, man, here's God telling me as a leader of a church and our leadership team here at AFI, and specifically our gov- governing elders, the reason why the word overseer in that verse is the Greek word episkopos, where we get the word bishop. And a bishop is really an administrative elder or uh, overseeing, governing type position in the church, the episkopos. Um, like I've told you before, we don't call it a bishop here at Athey because it's too like too much like chess or like uh, weird cults that have bishops and stuff. The word bishop's been ruined in my opinion. Uh, but that's what it is. The episkopos was translated to bishop and then uh, the bishop just simply means someone who's an overseeing administrative elder in the church. But he says, what, are you, what is your number one job? Feed the church of God. How important is the church of God? He purchased it with his own blood. That's how important the church is to Jesus Christ, that he purchased the church with his own blood. That, that makes the value astronomical. And so that's why I believe a good pastor is gonna give the whole counsel of God and they're gonna feed the church of God. And that's an important thing, feed with the word of God. Remember in Hebrews, he talked about the immature people that were still on the baby's breast milk spiritually when they should have been having tri-tip steaks. Remember that? Or ribeyes, tomahawks, that's probably what it was. I'm sure that's what Paul had in mind. Um, but he said, man, you're, you're still eating the milk when you should be having the, the, the meat. Uh, and, you know, and that's the problem is a lot of times we just stay on the, the elementary things. We don't go through the full counsel of God. So this idea of um, you know, deny, uh, you know, devaluing the word of God, that's the problem. So take heed, he says, Therefore, take heed to feed the church of God. Very important. Um, And these people were not doing that in Malachi's day. And sadly, I think we're equally not doing that today. 
The churches are, uh, I, I do think there's people that are finally a lot of times fed up. We're seeing churches get thinner and thinner, sadly, because th there's not meat, there's not feeding, and people are starving in a day that's kind of crazy, what people need. And man, if you're a pastor listening here today, uh, we heard, a, we got a nice little note from a pastor uh, somewhere here in America who, uh, who was getting weary of, um, he just kind of that's trying to pastor and shepherd and um, he felt a little bit like a, a little bit alone out in the town that he was in. But he, he, he mentioned how uh, Athey Creek had just been kind of a good refresher for him. And he's gotten right back to just teaching verse by verse through the Bible. And um, the Lord's gonna bless that. I, I really believe that. Uh, anybody that does that, hang on for the ride. People are hungry. They're starving. They really are spiritually starving for the meat of God's word. So that's the problem, the, the devaluing of God's word. Number four, uh, Malachi now calls them out for the deserting of their wives. To keep my D's going here, the deserting of their wives. Check out Malachi chapter two, uh, verse 10. He says, have we not all one father? Hath not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously every man against his brother by profaning the covenant of our father? What covenant is he talking about? Well, he goes on, verse 11. Judah hath dealt treacherously and an abomination is committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah hath profaned the holiness of the Lord, which he loved, and hath married the daughter of a strange God. Now, um, it's interesting because that same verse, verse 11, in the, King, uh, the New King James Version, it says, Judah has dealt treacherously, an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the Lord's holy institution, which he loves, and he has married the daughter of a foreign god. Um, and this is what you have to understand, and, and we know this from this passage, but there's also context of the actual children of Israel and what they were doing at this time. We know from other uh, passages of the Bible. What these guys were doing is kind of the same thing you see. You know the guy that uh, has a nice wife and a family, and then he gets to that certain age, where he sort of says, you know what, I'm kind of sick of, my wife's put on a few pounds and the kids are noisy and I'm still good looking and hot. And so I'm gonna get a big fancy gold chain and have hairy chest and get a butterfly silk shirt and get a, get a real nice sports car, red one with, with convertible. Uh, sorry if you own one of these, I'm not calling you out. I'm just <laughs> generally painting a picture. And he walks out and, and suddenly there's these young women in their 20s who have interest in him. Uh, and he's like, yeah, you know, I, I'm done. Dump my old wife, the nag. And then he marries the, the new improved version. The Bible says that guy is a total loser. So do we. <laughs> Got to just say it. It's, it. That's a loser. That midlife crisis well, it's really ugly. Uh, and that's what the people of Israel were doing. The men were going from the wife of their youth. Uh, we'll, we'll read more about this in a second. And they, they saw these young you know, girls that were from other nations, the Moabite women, uh, the Midianite women. And the, the Moabite and the Midianites, they were actually famous uh, for being beautiful girls. And they'd come down and these older Israeli guys are like, hey, these girls are hot. And they would dump their wives and they'd, they'd marry into these pagan foreign God uh, cultures. And these women would bring their idols with them and put them on the mantle. And these, these Jewish guys were basically uh, marrying into paganism is what was going on there. And, uh, um, and that's why 
You know, the Bible tells us about this, even in the New Testament, you and I should be careful about this. Uh, marriage is a institution um, that, that, that God calls holy in this verse. Did you see that? You've profaned the Lord's holy institution. That institution is marriage, by the way. Um, and there in the New Testament, we, we know this passage in this language we've talked about, 2 Corinthians 6.14. Be not unequally yoked. That means tied together like two oxen are tied together, yoked. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness? What communion hath light with darkness? So don't settle for marrying a non-believer in the New Testament ways. The Jews were very much prohibited from intermarrying these pagan cultures that were around them because they would draw them down spiritually. Um, by the way, this is something that, um, you know, the Israelites are saying, you know, out with the old, in with the new, but then the Lord gives kind of this heavy response. Check out his response. So this is what the, the, the Jews are doing. Out with the old, in with the new, marrying these pagan women from other cultures, dumping their faithful, loving wives of their youth. Verse 12, the Lord will cut off the man that doeth this, the master and the scholar out of the tabernacles of Jacob and him that offereth an offering unto the Lord of hosts. What does the Lord say? The Lord's gonna cut off this man. Now, this is an interesting thing because these aren't just general men. These are some of the scholars out of the tabernacles. These are the guys that should be religiously sound and they're the ones doing this horrible deed of midlife crisis and marrying these younger, prettier, you know, pagans. And the Lord says, well, you guys should be a little nervous about what he just said. He said, the Lord will cut off the man that doeth this. Now, what does this mean, cut off? Well, some scholars believe it means to be exiled from the people of Israel. Most scholars believe it means to be castrated. That would solve the problem. It's interesting, <laughs> Brett, I brought grandma tonight. We're here because of the end of the Old Testament. That's a good note to end the Old Testament on, in my opinion. Yeah, uh, castrated, that's what, it's, that's what it probably means. The Lord says, I, I'm gonna cut you off. Uh, an older man with a younger woman is not God's plan. You know, it's, it's the, the being the husband of one wife. That's the way God always intended it. And read on with verse 13. It says, and, um, and this have you done again, covering the altar of the Lord with tears, with weeping and with crying out, insomuch that he regardeth not the offering anymore or receiveth it with goodwill at your hand. Yet, verse 14, you say, wherefore, or why does our weeping on the altar not count? Well, he says, um, verse 14, because the Lord hath been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth against whom thou hast dealt treacherously. Yet she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Um, interesting, the Lord says, I'm not gonna receive your offering or your prayer when you go to the altar at the uh, temple. Um, because there's no repentance here. You've just done what you wanna do and married who you wanna marry and dumped your faithful good wife for these uh, younger uh, models from Moab, the Moabites or the Midianites, unconfessed, undealt with, unsolved, uh, unresolved sin. This sort of begs the question, doesn't it? What does the Lord look at with the midlife crisis guy of 2022 who does that? Or just the, the person who divorces his wife or even the wife divorces her husband. What does the Bible say about God's feelings toward divorce? Anybody? 
I wanted you to say it so I didn't have to because <laughs> people get mad at me. Well, I don't, what, my husband's a jerk. Yeah, welcome to the rest of us. We're all in that same situation. Uh, it's kind of funny how people can make a case against their husband or their wife, but oftentimes as a pastor, I've done over a thousand weddings and done a lot more marriage counseling sessions than that. I've found that we're all kind of in this together and a lot of times it's just, what are you gonna do? Are you gonna you know, start leaning toward divorce? By the way, divorce should be the D word in your home. You should never even let the D word go into your mind. This is what I've observed happens. You're married, you're married for a few years and, and uh, you know, mostly good, you know, the first few years of marriage and stuff. And then, and then you know, he does something or she does something that you don't like. And like, man, I wonder what it would be like if I got divorced. But oh, you would never really do it. You were just kind of playing around with the word in your head. Uh, and then you got one night, that really bad argument, you know, and, and that's what happens. You and I, as married couples, we spend five bucks on a five cent argument. But there you are at two in the morning when you should be sleeping, you're arguing and the word divorce comes out. I'm, I should divorce you. It should be the unmentionable word. I'll tell you why. Because even though you didn't really mean it in that argument, pretty soon that starts to become almost thought about as a possibility. It never starts really with, I'm gonna divorce you, you big jerk. It doesn't just happen overnight. It happens over time and letting your mind go there and talk about that in your head. And instead of you know, fighting for your marriage and, and trying to do what's right, people go to, they somehow think divorce is the easier, easier path. It's been said when the padlock of the door of marriage is locked from the outside, when the house catches on fire, you spend all your energy trying to put the fire out. But the problem is a lot of people, instead of trying to put the fire out, they run for the door. Um, but divorce is never a great plan. Um, you know, it's interesting that, you know, uh, the Bible tells us so much about marriage, but this one kind of reminds me, and this is what these men of Israel should have been doing. There in 1 Peter 3, 7, Peter said, likewise, you husband, dwell with your wives according to knowledge, giving honor to the wife as unto the weaker vessel, as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. Um, and I gotta say this, if you're new here, new to Christianity, some of you are already offended. The wife is the weaker vessel. Um, the Bible just says that, I'm sorry. Uh, you gotta go with the Bible. Um, and um, the, you say, well, Brett, that's not true. Well, it is, it is true. But what's a vessel? Uh, let's talk about vessels for a second. Let's, let's take a root beer mug, is that a vessel? Yeah, a root beer mug's a vessel. So you put the root beer mug on the table and then let's take a wine glass. Is that a vessel? Yep, wine glass, root beer mug. Are they two vessels? Are they different? Which one's the weaker vessel? Which one's the superior vessel? <laughs> Nobody wants to answer that. I'm not saying a thing on that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, no, the wine glass is the one you put it out on display because it's a pretty vessel. It's something you put out there for all the world to see because it's a better vessel. You can slam the root beer mug on the counter, slide it down and put it in the freezer and freeze it. Uh, all kinds of crazy stuff with a root beer mug. But you know, the wine glass is the vessel of honor and that's what it says. Husbands dwell with their wife. You're the clunky vessel that's tough and maybe a little thicker skinned in some ways, uh, very logical, but not so sensitive. And you get to dwell with your wife who's more sensitive, definitely more beautiful. Trust me, brothers, on this one. Uh, as, as, as the wife is called this weaker vessel, but more than that, being heirs together, working together in the, in the grace of life. And notice husbands, it says that your prayers be not hindered. That's what was happening to the men of Micah's day. 
They left their wives, treated them horribly. That's what our text tells us. And the Lord says, and you think I'm gonna hear your prayers at the altar? It's the same thing for you and me in modern church age. Uh, if you think you're treating your wife badly, and you are, don't be shocked if God doesn't listen to your prayers. Your prayers will be hindered. Um, repentance, by the way, is what these people need. Repentance is what you and I need. Uh, when we have marriages that are in trouble, repent. Um, by the way, this, let me talk about this. Since God hates divorce and, and man, you, know, you got these guys and this comes on pretty strong. And some of you are thinking, oh, great, Brett, I'm really feeling depressed now because I'm a divorced person. I'm irredeemable, unreconcilable. Um, and the Lord hates divorce. And there's even that scripture that talks about if a person's been divorced, they should not be remarried. And uh, some of you have kind of thought about that. And some of you have come to, from churches that said, yep, that's the way it is. If you've been divorced, you can never remarry someone. How many of you guys have gone to churches like that that taught that? Yep, probably a fourth of you, yep. Um, can I just tell you, I don't agree with that view. Well, Jesus said it, yes, he did. But here's what Jesus also teaches. Would you agree that Jesus teaches that our sins can be forgiven? And what does forgiven mean? He remembers our sins no more. He puts our sins as far as east is from the west. Um, you see, here's the thing you have to understand. An unrepentant sinner who's divorced, they shouldn't get remarried. Um, I've seen that. I've, I've actually had couples sitting in my office saying, Brett, we want you to do our wedding. And, and I'll, I'll say, tell me your story. Well, we were divorced. Well, um, tell me about that. Well, he was just a jerk, left his socks on the floor. I thought he was a total dweeb. So I dumped him. He deserves it. I hope he suffers in hell. Uh, but this guy is much more handsome and he likes me more than my husband ever did. And so I want to marry him. I'm just going to say it right now. I probably won't do that wedding. I'll probably say, you know what? I, and I'll show there in Matthew where Jesus talked about, man, if you've been divorced, you're not to be remarried. Why? Because she's still wrestling with the sin in her heart toward her ex-husband. There's no, there's no healing. There's no reconciliation. There's, I can tell there's still issues going on there. Um, but if there's a couple that comes in and, you know, like here's a, a great example. And this is, there's, I could give you a hundred scenarios, but um, here's one. A couple gets married before they were ever saved. They were on LSD when they got married and uh, were, you know, suicidal and uh, manic. And, and then they got divorced. And then years later, they, one of them accepts Jesus and comes, becomes a Christian and realizes what a horrible place they were in their life. And they confess that sin and that marriage and that whole falling apart of their marriage and, and just say, Lord, we were sinful and we were wrong in that. And every part of that was wrong. And as they confess that, I believe that person, old things are passed away. All things become new. In God's eyes, that person is brand new. So that person can get remarried if they've dealt with the sin that they were engaged in in their previous marriage. Does that make sense? Now there's a million stories that, we, that have varying degrees and it's not always an exact science, but that's, that's why I love what the psalmist said. You know, in Psalm 32, it reminds me, you know, David, it says in Psalm 32 verse one, who, you know, committed adultery and all that stuff. He said, blessed is he whose transgression or sin is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed or happy is that word. Happy is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity and in whose spirit there is no guile. When I kept silence, that's unrepentant. My bones waxed old through my roaring all the day long for day and night thy hand, God's hand was heavy upon me. My moisture turned into the drought of summer. Selah, the word Selah means stop and think about that. David saying, man, when I was unrepentant and was hiding my sin, Man, I was just in drought and dry times and the heaviness of God was on my head. 
Then verse five, I acknowledged my sin unto thee and my iniquity have I not hid. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and thou forgavest the iniquity of my sin. Selah, which means stop and think about that. If you confess your sins, he will be faithful and just to forgive you and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. That was the problem with the people of Micah's day. They were blowing off their marriages, their covenant that God says is a holy institution. They were blowing that off. And so God says, yeah, good luck having your sacrifice at the altar mean anything. You can cry your eyes out at the altar all day long. They're, like it says there in verse uh, 13, weeping, crying out, but the Lord's not gonna regard your prayers or or hear you because of unrepentant, uh, unconfessed, undealt with sin. So, um, you know, back to point four here, they were deserting uh, their wives. um, And she was called thy companion, the wife, verse 14, uh, uh, of the covenant there. And that's that's important. The wife of thy covenant. Um, So verse 14, yet you say, wherefore? Why? Because the Lord hath... Uh, been witness between thee and the wife of thy youth against whom thou dealt treacherously, yet she is thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. Verse 15, and did not he make one? That's another thing we know from marriage. Two shall become one flesh, the Bible says. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning Jesus Christ and the church, Paul said in Ephesians 5. When you get married, the Lord joins two people together spiritually, body, soul, and spirit. That's why divorce is such a rip. You know, people think, oh, divorce is a solution, but then they're shocked at how painful it is once they pull the trigger. And the reason, the Lord joins people. What God has put together, um, what does it say? Matthew 19. He answered and said to them, you have, not, uh, have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? There was a pastor trying to um, teach about all the different genders and how God loves them all and they can all be married in whatever fashion. And he said the and between the male and female is sort of this infinite of, you know, uh, that's just the kind of thing I was talking about when your brain's falling out, that's dumb. God says he made them male and female, A, B, zero, one, X, O, uh, on, off, uh, male, female, electrical outlet, uh, electrical plug. I like, you know what I'm saying? It's like, it's, this isn't rocket science, folks. He made them male, female. I love that congressman was like, ain't but two genders. Did you guys hear that guy? Look him up, you'll you'll crack up. Ain't but two genders. (laughs) Anyway. (laughs) Verse five, and said, for this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave to his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Including the married couple. They shouldn't put their marriage asunder because God has miraculously joined them together. Man, if you're thinking about divorce right now, can I just say, stop. Oh, but Brett, you don't know my circumstances. That's true, but I would still say stop. Make sure if you're thinking divorce, uh, get some wise, godly, biblical counsel. Don't listen to your neighbor or your friends at work because they'll all say, yeah, dump the jerk. That's the, that's the culture we live in. But you know, being one who sticks to a difficult marriage is what God actually, I think, always in, in, intended. Well, Brett, what if I'm being physically abused? Well, if you're being physically abused as a wife or as a husband, uh, you need to get out of that house and get help 
and, and man, come to the church, talk to our pastors, or we've got a, a huge team of women that are amazingly gifted, blessed ladies that can come alongside of you and help you. Uh, you're not supposed to stay in a house where you're being beat up. That's of course the truth. It's always been that way. Um, but it doesn't necessarily mean divorce. But you're telling me I can't divorce a, an abusive husband? I'm just saying you should probably get some wise counsel and you should definitely get yourself in a safe place. But then from there, man, there's some work that needs to be done. And before you go back into that house, it needs to be a safe situation. Um, and that needs to be assured. And how do you do that? A lot of work. And that man needs to repent. And there's a lot of men at Ethan Creek that will help him. We'd like to assist him. <laughs> um, and I'm telling you that sometimes that's what the Lord uses to get a person to wake up. I call it the laying on of hands. <laughs> no, I, I'm not, wait, no. <laughs> That's only happened a couple times. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but truly, that, that's what needs to happen. Um, so I know it's hard, and I know some of you are saying, but, but that's horrible, and the world doesn't agree with you on that. But again, I would refer to you, the God's, God's holy word. And on this point, that's what Malachi is trying to tell us. They blew off the word, and especially in this issue of marriage, and the Lord's calling them out right here. It's pretty heavy. So uh, all that to say, you've got, you know, the deserting of their wives. Um, uh, and, um, and it says for verse 16, for the Lord, uh, the Lord, the God of Israel hath, uh, saith that he hateth putting away. That's where we have the quote, you know, uh, Matthew 19, 6, God hates divorce. He first said that in Malachi right here, the Lord hates uh, putting away or divorce for one covereth violence with his garment, saith the Lord of hosts, therefore take heed to your spirit that you deal not treacherously. Um, he's talking to the men, by the way, here. Uh, men are the ones the Lord puts on the hook and men should take responsibility in these things. Well, uh, that brings us to this, the fifth section uh, of Malachi. Uh, we're gonna see the distorting of God's word. So not only were they you know, um, you know, devaluing God's word, deserting their wives, but number five, distorting the word of God. That was, that was just kind of tweaking it to fit their fancy. Uh, take a look here in verse 17. And it goes on, by the way, into chapter three, uh, all the way to verse six. Uh, that's where we get the answer, the solution. But verse 17 is the problem. It says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. Yet you say, wherein have we wearied him? When you say, everyone that doeth evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and he that delighteth in them, or wherein the, uh, the, the God of judgment. This is where there's that distortion of the word. It's like what Isaiah 5.20, this starts to make me think of Isaiah 5.20. Woe unto them that call evil good and good evil, that put darkness for light, light for darkness, that put bitter for sweet, and sweet for uh, bitter. Um, you know, this, this is what we're seeing on uh, exponential levels today, where the world is calling, you know, good things evil and evil things good. This, this Roe versus Wade decision that was made has made the whole thing kind of uh, come out in uh, radical terms. We're seeing kind of the ugliness come out. Um, and we kind of knew that would happen. We knew that would happen with the overturning of Roe versus Wade. And I'm, I'm really excited about that. I'm really happy that that happened. Um, I did a truck talk the other day and kind of addressed that on my uh, Instagram account. But I, I, I would say to all of you, um, one thing we need to remember is you cannot legislate righteousness. 
So I'm really glad Roe versus Wade was overturned. Uh, hopefully lives of babies will be saved. Um, and, um, but at the same time, you know, it's got to ch change from the heart. Uh, I wonder, are we going to really see a decrease in, in abortions? Um, uh, or is it going to increase? Like there's a whole group of people that are saying, this might just make it ramp up. Um, but all this ugliness and people are, you know, on my Instagram, there was this one girl said, you know, this is disgusting um, and I'm never coming to your church again. And I, and I thought, what a sad response to that, because in my opinion, what's disgusting is a baby being pulled out of a mother's womb that should be the safest place in the world and being hacked up in pieces with saline solution killing it. Like, that's disgusting. I'm just saying that. Just saying that. Um, and yet, you know, a lot of the world's saying, no, it's horrible and disgusting that a white male like me is saying something about a woman's body. I'm not saying one thing about her body. I'm saying something about the body of a, of a child that's in that mother's womb. It's a separate body. And we can talk about that. But, you know, we can hammer away and say, you shouldn't have an abortion, you shouldn't have an abortion. But again, you can't clean the fish before you catch them. Jesus said, I will make you fishers of men. And if people are not saved or regenerated, their hearts are changed by the Lord, they're gonna keep doing sinful stuff and they could care less what you think. And so that's the problem. When, when we make this a strictly political thing, um, and by the way, some people say, bro, why are you being political here? You shouldn't talk about politics. Listen, uh, I, I never talk about politics. I talk about Bible Um <laughs> Abortion is a biblical issue. Bro, you don't have a right to talk about politics because you're a pastor and blah, blah, blah. No, I, I, I talk about what's in the Bible and the Bible has a lot to say about the baby in the mother's womb. Um, people say that also, by the way, when I talk about Israel. We shouldn't be talking about politics, Brett. Bible talks all about Israel and it's something we're supposed to keep an eye on the last days, how the world's gonna act toward Israel. So I'm not into the politics. I'm into what the Bible actually teaches and I think pastors should talk about the things the Bible talks about. Um, you don't hear me talk about things that the Bible's kind of silent on, by the way. Um, there's issues that I feel strongly about that I resist the temptation to dive into it here with you guys um, because uh, it's not in the Bible. Um, now, if you and I are having coffee and we're talking, I'll tell you what I feel about certain things. But, but as a pastor of a congregation, let's, I want to stick with what the Bible is very clear on. And abortion is one of those. Isn't it amazing that you know, the, the pro-abortion people are calling this uh, SCOTUS decision horrible and disgusting. That's a classic example of calling evil good and good evil. Um, Oregon being a sanctuary for people uh, to come and get abortions. That's calling good evil and calling evil good. You don't call it a sanctuary. I, I, I think Oregon is uh, heartbreakingly evil in what we're hoping to do here uh, in our state as it relates to abortion. Um, so, um, you know, it, it, we can talk about, you know, same-sex marriage and LGBTQ issues. Those are all biblical issues of what the Bible talks about. Um, so all that to say, um, we have to be really careful about, you know, calling good evil and evil good. But he goes on in chapter 3, verse 1. Um, it says this in verse 1, Behold, I will send my messenger. And he shall prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple. Even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in, behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. When the world gets to that place where good is being called evil and evil is being called good, 
the solution, well, there's two messengers that are mentioned here. Now this gets interesting. Um, the distorting of God's word is, is sort of the last straw, it seems, before God says, I'm gonna intervene. I believe that's true both when Jesus came the first time, but it's gonna be even more true when he comes in the second coming. But what's interesting here is there's two messengers. Do you know who these messengers are? The first one, verse, verse one of three, behold, I will send my messenger and he shall prepare the way before me. We probably know who this is, right? Who's the one that prepared the way for the Messiah? J the B, John the Baptist. Um, we know that. By the way, there's some really interesting stuff um, about John the Baptist that I think uh, fits in with this Malachi passage. Matthew 11, nine through 10 says, but, um, but what went ye out for to see when they went to go see, uh, you know, J the B? A prophet? Yea, I send you more than a prophet, for this is he of whom is written, Behold, I send my messenger before thy face, which shall prepare thy way before me. Here, you know, Jesus is quoting from Malachi, referring to John the Baptist. So we know this is really the messenger being talked about. Also, Luke chapter 1, verse 17. Um, which says this, Luke 1, 17, and he shall go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. The word Elias, by the way, is there. If you think you're seeing misspellings on some of my scriptures that I put up there, sometimes people say that, it's because I'm putting the King James up there and the King James often spells some of these words in Old English or even some of the more of the Greek versions of the Old Testament Hebrew words. And so don't be, you know, if you see the word Noah spelled N-O-E, don't panic, don't have a, a heart attack. Uh, that's the way the King James spells it. Um, we've had people writing in, you guys are horrible spellers. Um, um, no, we're, we're putting King James up there because that's the Bible that I use, the holy anointed version. Uh, no, just, just kidding. I love a lot. Of, uh, there's great translations out there, but I do like the King James. But here in Luke, it says, he shall go before him, uh, the spirit of power of Elijah, is what we're talking about, to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Again, that's this messenger talked about in chapter three, verse one. Um, now, all that to say, um, you know, with the, the, the people of, of Israel during Malachi's time, they'd be, they got to that pinnacle of problems when they distorted God's word to mean things that it didn't. So the Lord says, that's when I'm going to send my messenger. He's going to prepare the way for messenger number two. At the end of verse uh, one, it says, uh, he'll prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant. Which messenger do you think that is? Jesus, right. So the first one is John the Baptist. The second one is Jesus. Uh, and he's bringing the new covenant which is the New Testament, the dedication there in the temple. By the way, um, if you remember Luke chapter two, verses 25 through 40, there were two people that recognized Jesus as the Messiah there when he was dedicated in the temple. Simeon, the, the old guy, and Anna. Anna was also uh, in her 80s. Um, and they were waiting to see the Messiah. Those that seek him will find them, the Bible says. And these, um, these people saw this fulfillment here of, of chapter three, verse one, there when Jesus was brought to the temple. Um, by the way, I love that that's true, that when you seek the Lord, like Simeon and Anna, uh, Jeremiah 29, 13 says, you shall seek me and find me when you shall search for me with all your heart. Proverbs eight seventeen. I love them that love me and those that seek me early shall find me. 
Um, that's such an important thing. But back to point number five here, um, the distorting of God's word, the answer is to have Christ come, the living word, and be the answer. Uh, and it goes on in verse two. But who may abide the day of his coming? And who shall stand when he appeareth? <clears throat> For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. Now this is where we have to discern, are we talking about Jesus' first coming? Was there a gap between verse one and verse two? when suddenly we're talking about this coming where no one's gonna be able to stand when he appears. Um, most scholars believe now we're talking about his second coming. Remember the Old Testament Jews, they didn't look at it as multiple comings. They thought it was just one coming of Jesus, but it was actually his first coming uh, being prepared by John the Baptist, but his second coming uh, is gonna be very different than that where people won't be able to stand. It'll be like a refiner's fire. That's the second coming. Verse three goes on. And he shall sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he shall purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer unto the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then shall the offering of Judah and Jerusalem be pleasant unto the Lord as in the days of old, as in former years. And I will come near to you to judgment and I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers against the adulterers and against the false swearers or liars, against those that oppress the hireling of his wages, the widow and the fatherless that turn aside the stranger from his right and fear not me, saith the Lord of hosts. This is all what Jesus is gonna, gonna do in his uh, refining fire second coming. Things will be purified during the, um, the second coming of Christ. Um, notice this list here, there's quite a list. First of all, sorcery. Some of you are like, who does sorcery anymore? Well, actually, it's on the rise if you didn't know that. And I'm not talking about Harry Potter. Um, there's actually real stuff that's going on. New Age is sort of linked to sorcery, if you ask me, uh, mixed in with feminism. There's some weird stuff in feminism, New Age, and dark uh, practices, you know. Um, did you see this? Uh, this is the kind of stuff you see all over the country and all over the world. Uh, why rich witchcraft is on the rise. Casting spells and assembling altars have become quite lucrative, according to the article. You can attend a fall equinox ritual organized by Airbnb, sign up for a subscription, uh, which boxes offering the equivalent of a blue apron for magic making, and buy aura cleanses on uh, Etsy. Instagram's reigning uh, witch influencer, Brie Luna, has more than 450,000 followers and has collaborated with Coach Refinery29, Smashbox, for which she recently introduced a line of cosmetics inspired by the transformative quality of crystals. Um, you, you say, Brett, that's weird. That's just a fringe weird. Man, we got Satan worship in the US Navy now. You can have services you can go to. There's just all kinds of dark sorcery type stuff. And the reason this is important not to blow this off as sort of comical is it's on the rise, but we also know that this is what the Antichrist is gonna be a part of. The Bible talks about in Daniel and Revelation, Antichrist is gonna be linked to black magic and sorcery. So it's gonna only rise, I think, uh, to the time where that Antichrist comes. Um, and, and this is where Jesus is gonna intervene. So you got sorcery, you've got adultery, liars, oppressing the employees, um, uh, you know, people that work for you, not paying them well. Hopefully that's none of you. Um, orphans and widows uh, turning to the side of a stranger and not, not really fearing God. Those are the seven things the Lord's gonna set right the Jews during the millennial kingdom. When he rules and reigns, he's gonna wipe out all that stuff uh, and he's gonna bring in righteousness. 
And look at verse six, it says, for I am the Lord, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. The only reason you guys aren't wiped out right now is because I don't change. And I've made a promise that I keep, that's what he's saying. Aren't you thankful the Lord never changes? You can trust God. Now, if you're a Muslim, you cannot. A law of the Muslim faith uh, is a capricious God. You don't really know what he's gonna do at any given moment. He can be bad or good or, you know, it just depends on what mood he's in. Hopefully he's in a good mood when you bump into Allah. Um, and really, uh, I'm so thankful the Bible says, I am the Lord, I never change. We know exactly who our Lord is. Hebrews chapter 13, verse eight, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Uh, I love James 1:17. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights. Check this out, the last part. With whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. And I love that. There's no variableness, no shadow of turning with our God. He's always the same. So, so far in, in Malachi, we see the def, def, denying of God's word, uh, pardon me, the, the denying of God's love, chapter one, verse two through five. You have the defiling of God's table, the devaluing of God's word, the deserting of their wives, and the distorting of God's word. And that brings us to number six, the depriving of God's house. This has to do with the worship. And the Lord says, you've deprived my house. Uh, take a look, verses seven through 12 is what we read on Sunday. They were depriving the, the house of God with their worship, especially in their tithes and offerings. That verses, verses seven, all the way through verse 12, we looked at that in depth. If you missed that teaching on Sunday, if you wanna know the you know, tithing 101, what tithing, what the offering is, um, we talked about the biblical approach to that. Uh, and um, I think that's an important study that we should know about. Um, so that's the, 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 the depriving of God's house. Verses seven through 12, we looked at that on Sunday. Number seven the degrading of God's work. That's verses 13 through 18, let's read. He says, your words have been stout against me, saith the Lord. Yet you say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Ye have said, it is vain to serve God. And what profit is it that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And um, verse 15, and now we call the proud happy. Yea, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, even they that tempt God even are delivered. Um, interesting, um, they're basically saying the people are like, serving the Lord is a waste of time. Um, and that's just kind of a secular, worldly, godless sort of perspective. Why do you guys go to church on a Wednesday night? You could be sitting at home watching TV here going to your kids' sporting events. What a waste of time. Well, that's what the world says. That's what these Jews were saying during Malachi's time. Serving the Lord's a waste of time. Do you guys remember? Um, you know who else kind of talked about worship being a waste of time? Was Judas Iscariot. Is that a good guy to be linked to in the Bible? Remember John 12, verses three through five, then took Mary a pound of ointment of spikenard, very costly and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the odor of the ointment. Then said one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, which would betray him, why was not this ointment sold for 300 pence and given to the poor? And as you read on, Jesus knew what he was thinking and he knew that he was a thief, didn't care about the poor, but he only wanted to keep the money for himself. Um, this is not a good look, criticizing worship of God. 
Hope you're not a critic of worship. Look at that person here at church lifting their hands, singing on a Sunday morning. What a waste of time. What a weirdo. Um, hopefully you're not doing that. That's, you're acting like Judas Iscariot if you're doing that. But that's what these people, um, you know, that's what they were. Um, but they were degrading God's work and anybody who was doing God's work or serving the Lord. They, you know, they were making statements like in verse 15. Here it says, be prideful uh, and you'll be happier if you're prideful. And if you're into sin, you'll be all hooked up with money and uh, popularity. That's kind of what it's saying here. Um, does this remind you, remember the psalmist, I think it was Asaph who wrote the psalm, Psalm 73. Um, and he talked about, you know, the wicked prospering. Oh, Lord, why do the wicked prosper? You know, here I am serving you, but they're the ones who are, why is Hollywood elites being blessed? Why do people that are corrupt and sinful make all the money and live in fancy houses? Um, why do the heathen rage, he said. But, but then in the middle of that chapter, Psalm 73, he said, when I thought to know this, it was too painful for me until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end. And then he said, oh man, once I understood their end, they might be living large with yachts and fancy houses now and wealth and popularity and fame and fortune. But then I understood their end. And he said, oh, I'm wicked to have even thought that way toward them. He should have been compassionate toward those people knowing that they were gonna go to destruction. You know, the Bible says there is pleasure in sin for a season. Hebrews 11, 24, by faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, living large in Egypt, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God, slaves, rather than to enjoy the pleasure of sin for a season. That's what Moses saw it as. I could live large in sin and have pleasure just for this short time. But he said, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the award, reward. Um, you know, um, right now there's all kinds of people that are successful, but the Bible says their end is not good. There is pleasure in sin for a season, but the end leads to destruction is what it says. Well, back to point seven. Uh, in verse 16, then they that feared the Lord spake often one to another, and the Lord hearkened and heard it. And um, a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord, and that thought upon his name. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts. In that day when I make up my jewels, and I will spare them as a man spareth his own son that serveth him. Then shall you return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between him that serveth God and him that serveth him not. There's coming of a day where the Lord's gonna break out the book of remembrance. As it turns out, the Lord is scrapbooking for you scrapbookers out there. There's a book of remembrance. Now, um, I, I don't have time to go into this the fullest, but the, the, the question is what kind of a book of remembrance do you have? For the unbeliever, it's a book of everything you've done wrong and it's detailed with horrible pictures and memory of all the bad things you've done. But if you're a believer and you're a Christian, then your scrapbook that God has is only the good things, the good things that you did. It's just that simple. Um, there's scriptures that talk about this, like in Colossians 2, 14, blotting out the handwriting of ordinances that was, that was against us, the laws that went against us, which were contrary to us. And he, the Lord, took it out of the way when he nailed it 
to the cross. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, even I am he that blotteth out thy transgressions for mine own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So this is like, you know, there's, gonna, there's a report card for your life. I don't know about you guys, but when I was in school as a kid, I hated when report cards came out. I lived in total fear, especially those ones they'd mail to your parents. You never really knew when they were gonna show up. Uh, but as a Christian, I love it because our report card is gonna be good if you've been washed in the blood of Christ and had your sins nailed to the cross, he blots out your transgression and your report card's gonna come out looking good because he's merciful. Um, but um, what else does the Lord collect, by the way, in his scrapbook? There, there's interesting things when you really read the Bible. Psalm 56, verse eight, thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears in a bottle, are they not in thy book? Lord in his scrapbook remembers your tears and your suffering and the hurts and the pains that you go through. Um, the Lord says, I'm gonna remember those. He remembers your hurts and your sufferings. He doesn't forget those things. Well, all that to say, they said, whatever, we don't care what God's work is, what a waste of time it is. And so um, that brings us to the last and final chapter of the last and final book of the Old Testament. And it's only six little verses long. And it says this uh, in Malachi chapter four, verse one. For behold, the day cometh. What day do you speak, believe that's probably speaking of? The day of the Lord. For the day cometh that shall burn as an oven and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall be the son of righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and he shall go forth and grow up of calves on the stall. Um, interesting, the, the day of the Lord, stubble burns quick. Um, the stuff that's evil and wrong when, in the day of the Lord, it's gonna burn out quickly. Um, I remember when I was doing a wedding one time, and they were doing the unity candle, the romantic husband and wife leaning. And she pulls the candle out and they're lighting it and she kind of leans into it. But her veil, you know, made of that tool caught on fire. And it went up, that stuff goes up like a torch. Like, like it looks like cellophane, you know, when it's burning. And it was kind of a scary situation. And the husband, very quick thinking, started poof, 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 like smacking her on the head to put out the fire on her head with all that hairspray and stuff. Man, I was like, whew, don't light a match. It was, it was scary. Um, but uh, good news, he got the fire out, but she turned around and looked at me with kind of this horrified look and she had this big hole in her veil. It literally burned a hole this big in her veil. And we did the rest of the wedding. And when it came time to kiss the bride, he didn't have to lift the veil, he kissed her through the burned out hole. Um, it, it, it turned out great. Not gonna be great when the, the stubble of the world gets burned up. It's gonna go up quick and hot. That's what it's saying here. Verse two talks about, the Lord's gonna he have healing in his wings. And there's a, there's a phrase you and I don't recognize when it says, you'll go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. Um, that's an idiom that the Jews would use to talk about a healthy, well-fed cow or cattle that's in the stall that's healthy is the idea. The Lord's gonna take good care of you. Verse three, and he shall tread down the wicked for they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Um, so, you know, rule a reign is what he's gonna do. Verse four, remember ye the law of Moses, my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb, for all Israel with the statutes and judgments, behold, 
I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, we already read a little bit about this, um, this thing. And, and when did Elijah come? Has, when did Elijah come? Has he come? Will he come? Is he going to come in the future? The answer is yes, yes, and yes. Um, well, uh, first of all, you have to remember, did Elijah ever see death? No. How many times is it appointed for a person to die? The Bible says once it's appointed for a man to die. Now, Jesus dealt with this. John the Baptist dealt with this, but there's some interesting, seemingly contradicted uh, answers. Let me just go over this really quickly. This is kind of a fun thing about John the Baptist. In Matthew 11, verses 12 through 15, um, it says, and from the days John the Baptist till now, the kingdom of heaven suffereth violence and the violent taketh by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. This is by the way where Jesus basically calls John the Baptist the last of the Old Testament prophets. That's why we don't have prophets in the New Testament. These guys are done. We have a word of prophecy that can be given by any of the Christians in the New Testament. Read 1 Corinthians 14, 1 Corinthians 12, talks about the, the manifestations of the Spirit and a word of prophecy is different than these guys of the Old Testament. So J the B, he's the last of the prophets. They prophesied until the law, until John. And check this out, verse 14, if you will receive it, this is Elias or Elijah, which was for to come. He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So man, Jesus is talking about how John the Baptist somehow is Elijah. Would you agree with that? Yes. But check out this in John chapter one, verse 19 through 23. This is the record of John when the Jews sent priests and Levites from Jerusalem to ask him, who art thou? And he confessed and denied not, but confessed, I am not the Christ. And they asked him, what then art thou? Are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. Art thou that prophet? He answered, no. Then they said unto him, well, who art thou? That we may give an answer to them that sent us. What saith thou of thyself? And he said, I am the voice of one crying in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord, as said the prophet Isaiah. Don't you love John the Baptist? What an amazing guy. He was called the greatest man born among women. That's what Jesus called him. Uh, he was an amazing guy, but he said, I am not that. I am not that. I'm not, that. I'm just a voice crying wilderness. But when he says, they say, are you Elijah the prophet? He says, no. So which one's right, John the Baptist or Jesus? Oh, I tricked some of you guys. I heard Jesus, because he's always right, right? Yeah, but check this out. Uh, so you say, wait, so John the Baptist is not Elijah. Well, then Jesus said this mysteriously in Matthew chapter 17. His disciples asked him saying, why then say the scribes that Elijah must come first? Um, they were teaching that by the way from Malachi, the Hebrew Bible. And Jesus answers them, Elijah truly shall come first and restore all things. But I say unto you that Elijah has come already and they knew him not, but have done unto him whatsoever they listed. Likewise shall also the son of man suffer of them. Then the disciples understood that he spake unto them of John the Baptist. Who? Huh? Is he or isn't he Elijah? Here's what basically when you put it all together. Elijah never died. He was taken up into heaven. But it seems that John the Baptist perhaps had the spirit of Elijah upon him in some sort of mysterious spiritual way. That's why Jesus, like if you have ears to hear and if, you, if you're heavy enough to really understand this, John the Baptist was Elijah, but Elijah's like, I am not Elijah. But he had the spirit of Elijah in him and upon him. 
But it says he's gonna come at the end and restore all things. Did John the Baptist do that? No, but Elijah's coming again. Did you know that? And we read that, by the way, um, in, uh, in Revelation. Uh, in fact, uh, this is just part of the story in Revelation chapter 11, verses five through six, if uh, these two witnesses are gonna come. And check out what happens. One of them, I believe, is, is Elijah. The other, probably Moses. So in the tribulation period, these two prophets of the Old Testament are gonna be on the scene. And if any man will hurt them, the scriptures say, fire will proceed out of their mouth and devour their enemies. Does that sound like Elijah? Kinda. <laughs> he was into fire and killing people. Um, and if any man will hurt them, he must uh, in this manner be killed. So barbecue. These have power to shut heaven that it rain in the, in the days of their property. Who, who shut the rains of heaven down? Elijah. And also have power over the water to turn them to blood. Who was that? Moses. And to smite the earth with all the plagues as often as they will. Moses. And now the story goes on. If you read through the rest of the book of Revelation in the tribulation period, the world hates these guys, but nobody can touch them. But eventually, finally, they will be killed in the streets of Jerusalem and their bodies will be left there for days and the world's gonna celebrate their death. And they're gonna be like, Merry Christmas, the two prophets are dead. And they'll, they'll give gifts one to another. In the tribulation, they'll be so happy these two guys are dead. They'll start giving gifts and celebrating, but then the guys come alive again as they've been laying in the street for three days. They're gonna rise up and they'll say, we're back. No, <laughs> I just made that part up, but they will come back to life. Um, maybe Moses and Elijah. I wouldn't die on that battlefield. Some people say Enoch. And the reason Enoch was the last day's prophet and he also didn't see death. There was mysterious circumstances around Moses' death, if you recall. There was a contending for the body of Moses between Michael, the archangel, and Satan. Remember that whole thing in the book of Jude? But that's a whole other story. <laughs> um, but he says uh, in verse six, as we end, and he shall turn the heart of the fathers to children and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. What's the last word of the Old Testament? Curse. And it really is because the law of the Old Testament is, shows that we cannot be good enough and that we are cursed with sin. What's the last phrase of the New Testament? I'll just tell you, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, amen. That's, I, I like that. But one of the things as we transition, and we're almost done here tonight, but um, without the, the, the heavy Old Testament, the New Testament won't be appreciated nearly as much as it could be. I'm so thankful that I have a congregation willing to go through the Old Testament all these years. Um, it's the black backdrop of our sin and depravity and the curse of sin that makes the New Testament come alive with joy. And man, I hope that as we get into Matthew next week, that we're gonna see just the joy of God's plan to save. Um, one more thing, I'm gonna make this a major theme and I'm probably gonna kick, kick this over and over again. But when you talk to your Jewish friends, don't say, yeah, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Um, we need to tell the Jewish people that we know and love, do you understand Christianity didn't replace Judaism? Um, Christianity is a fulfilling of Judaism. Like, you know, the Old Testament to the, a real solid Bible-believing Christian is not an old passed away has-been book. It's the first part of the story and the New Testament is the next part that is connected to and joined together with the Old Testament. See, the Jews have a view because a lot of wacko Christians deal with this wrongly. Um, we we present it like, yeah, the Old Testament, the Jewish book, what a waste of time. Um, but, but the New Testament's the truth about Jesus. 
Um, and they treat it like the Jews are somehow disconnected. No, Jesus was a Jew. He was the Messiah of the Jews and he still is and he will be in the future. Um, we need to see the connection. It's not the end of the old and the beginning of the new. They connect together and we'll see that starting next week. So there we have it, the Old Testament, yes. Yeah. Amen.